Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well this wonderful 2015 New Year. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new hope. It's a new year. And I hope you have a great year. We're certainly looking forward to all that being, can be accomplished in the realm of philosophy with your glorious, gorgeous, low cleavage wonder bra support. You can go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. If you're buying stuff through Amazon, you can go through our links, which are available on the website and usually below the YouTube videos. Just bookmark them. And uh, that way, it's win, 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 win with a little bit of wine from me for donations. freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Please, please, please. More than ever, as philosophy begins to gain traction around the world and pump high juice of cognitive clarity into the neofrontal cortex of the species, we really have to do it now. You know, the show's gotten a lot bigger than I could have imagined, and that's because of your support. And it seems to me now is the time to seize that carp, to seize the day and advance philosophy as much as possible, if not now, when, and if not you and I, who's it going to be? I don't see anyone else waiting in the wings, so help us out if you can. And Mike, let's move on with the callers. All right. Well, up first today is John. John wrote in and said, During the racist until proven innocent Colin show, part of the discussion involved the historical context of racism in America. And this raised an important question. How much does the modality in which racism is expressed depend on the regional and cultural differences within the United States? That's a, it's a great question. Do you have thoughts? I mean, I have some thoughts on it, but uh, your show too. So do you have any thoughts on it, John? Well, first of all, um, good evening, Steph, and uh, aloha from Hawaii. Um, I love Freedom Main Radio. I've been listening for a while, and it's kind of weird being calling in, actually, and, and being on the other end of the podcast, because I know I'm going to listen to my own voice, and that's just going to seem strange. Well, first of all, you have a really nice voice, and secondly, it's just going to get weirder from here. Uh, so <laughs> please uh, <laughs> okay. keep going. All right, so... A couple of things. Just, I think this this question is is an important question because you know the United States is not a homogenous culture. There are a lot of different cultures within the culture, and sometimes this these cultural differences have spilled over into extreme forms of violence. You go back 150, 160 years. You're looking at the United States Civil War, and uh, you can also, I think, you can include all the various pogroms against various people and groups in the United States as part of some of this racial-based violence and cultural-based violence. Um, There's a couple of books that are interesting that I think really outline some of the things that I'm talking about in these questions. At least it outlines what the regional and cultural differences within the United States might be. Uh, In 1982, there was a book. It was called The Nine Nations of North America, and it was uh, written by Joel Garau. And this book is actually – it's really important politically because a lot of the political scientists who helped – during the Reagan Revolution and and some of the uh, the, the more conservative um, revolutions that kind of came in place and sort of replaced a lot of the the democratic control of, of United States politics, um, they utilized the information in this book to uh, really sort of capture the people um, of these different various regions and tailor their message, and so that helped them win the votes. Well, in 2012, um, the 
book was sort of redone by a different author. His name is Colin Woodard. It's called American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures in North America. And there's a map. And I sent Mike a map of the different uh, cultural regions. And I don't know if he got that on Skype. But uh, I think that map is really important to look at You know, if we're going to start talking about some of these different regions, just to get an understanding of what they could be. I'm just curious why you care. I'm not saying it's not a good reason to care. I'm just, why does it matter? Culture is my sworn enemy. And so what does it matter to you? And I'm happy, again, I don't want to sound overly skeptical. I'm happy to hear the reasons. What does it matter to you, John, what these cultural differences are? I think it's, it matters because I'm interested and curious about the cultural differences in the United States and, pl- and places where I live. You know, one of the things that really struck me, because I'm, I'm originally from Minnesota and I moved out to Hawaii in 2008, uh, but one of the things that struck me is just how much my own cultural biases really affected the way that I viewed society and my political opinions. And, uh, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of times based off of, I mean, this is one of the things I learned from this book is that based off of uh, looking at some of this, I was able to sort of analyze some of my own political views and some of my own uh, you know, views on ethics and other people and understand them in a different way. Kind of helped me understand, you know what, there's probably some, some racism here that doesn't get talked about. There's some kind of discrimination here that doesn't really get addressed in our society because it's, it's being dominated by certain cultural groups within the United States. And we sort of don't have a way of, we haven't really had a discussion about that. So just having the Okay, so, so hang on a sec. Sorry. So w- when you talk about racism, uh, what are you talking about? So to define racism as uh, prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. So I guess that's, that's a pretty good definition. Okay. And so which, which group are we talking about here? That's, I guess it's, it's a matter of where we should start. I think here's a good place to start. Um, well, no, hang on. Which group are you talking about? Because, I mean, if we're going to, I mean, look, there, there are lots of different races and cultures. And so if we're going to talk about Japanese prejudice against Filipinos or Hispanic prejudice against Asians, you know, because every group has those within it who view their group as superior and everyone else's as inferior. So if we're going to talk about racism, I need to know which groups we're discussing. This isn't okay. This is a is kind of a tricky question because the subject of race in a lot of the when we're trying to understand um, how different groups are oppressed. Sometimes it's not necessarily race-specific, but it's culture-specific. And so you can have cultural groups that share cultural ideals or memes or norms um, with another kind of cultural group, and that group can be equally repressed in certain uh, cultural regions of the United States. So it sort of depends. Um, It's hard to say, okay, well, all blacks, they have this, because it's not necessarily... Uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that. Um, I mean, I don't know how to exactly. So, are we? Talk, hang on. Are, are you talking about? And I'm sorry to be difficult. I just, you know, definitions and clarity solve yeah. 95% of human communication challenges and resolve about 99% of debates. 
But um, are you talking about in-group versus out-group preferences in terms of culture or uh, – I mean, there are many different races who are Catholics, and Catholics believe that they have the surefire route to heaven, and other religions don't. So that would be an in-group uh, preferences. There are people who uh, are born in England who think England is the best, and that ca- carries across a wide variety. Uh, there are people who believe a certain football or, or hockey team uh, are the best, and they would go across a wide variety uh, of races. Uh, there are, of course, those who believe races are superior uh, to one another, which I think is quite silly, but obviously people believe that. And so I, if you're talking about in-group preferences as a whole, in other words, if, if it's culture plus nationalism plus sports plus geography of every kind plus whatever, I mean, there are people who believe uh, that uh, there's a very common problem in psychology that which is called the women are wonderful uh, problem, which is, and you can Google this, uh, it's basically the idea that people just think women are wonderful and men are bad uh, in general when it comes to uh, questions about the genders. So, if you're talking about in-group preferences, which also go along gender lines, uh, or uh, go- gays sometimes feel that they're, you know, superior to breeders, or, of course, breeders feel that they're superior to gays sometimes. So if we're talking about in-group preferences, then I don't know how talking about race is particularly illuminating, if that makes sense, because just one aspect of about a billion. I think one of the things uh, – well – how about I try and compare and contrast this? Because um, I think I know what you're getting at, but there's there's a lot of... Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. I'm not trying to get at anything. I'm trying to understand what we're talking about before we dive right. in, right? But I'm trying to I'm trying to decide if this is an accurate paraphrase or not, if okay. that makes sense. So um, in in-group and out-group preference, that, that can be part of it. But also some of it is straight racism where one race feels that they are superior to another. You know, and I think depending on where you go within North America, uh, your view of, of racism may be different depending on, uh, depending on the cultural norms that you, you grew up with. So you might – like for example, in the Deep South, uh, you might have uh, been grown – like raised with this idea that white people are superior to black and that you are looking at more of like a caste system where you're born into this one race and that race is a very strict marker of, of quality. Whereas if you're born in um, Yankeedom or the North, um, it may be more culturally based. For example uh, – So hang on. So if you're talking about racism, you're talking about – white racism against blacks in the South. Is that right? Yes. And would that racism be that all whites are superior to all blacks? So some toothless, moonshining hick in the backwoods of Tennessee is superior to, say, Dr. Thomas Sowell or to, I don't know, Morgan Freeman or, you know, other high-achieving, high-worth, high-value blacks. Like they would say all Whites are superior to all blacks. Is that my understanding of what you mean by racism? Yes, and there's uh, I don't know. I, I have a there's there's a, a I don't know if you should even say it. It's kind of a joke that was told in the South, and uh, it was written in a book. I can't remember what it was, but it was sort of it sort of portrays the attitude in the South that they had. And so uh, I'm going to try and not use any inflammatory language when I tell this joke, but hopefully. You kind of get you mean, the point. Do you, from it. do you mean the use of the N word? Yes. Yeah, you can use the word nigger. Look, it's it's not it's not a Molotov cocktail. It's a language, and um, 
you know, it describes a, 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 a gruesome racial epithet, but you don't have to uh, worry about that here. Okay, well, so the, the joke is, and this is coming from the South, um, what do you call a nigger with a PhD? What do you call? A nigger. And that's that's the, the, the point is, is that even if... Oh, so if, if, black, if a black person goes and gets a really great uh, education, you still got to put him down with a racial epithet, right? Yeah, and that's sort of the view that was really common in the South, is that the black person is always black. It doesn't matter what they do. Um, they're always going to be like one caste beneath uh, white people. But not all white people, right? You know, if you think about the people who would tell that joke, um, it, it, I think you might be surprised. I mean, even like poor white people could tell that joke and they could feel – No, no. Look, I understand that. Superior. Obviously, it's, it, it's a vicious and nasty joke. But do you think that there is a person alive who would say that – I don't know. Who's, who's a noble black guy? I mean, Denzel Washington, I don't – I've seen him give speeches and all that. I mean, incredibly eloquent and, and uh, moving and noble guy and a great actor and all that. Um, so would, would somebody say that Charles Manson is superior to Denzel Washington because Charles Manson is white? Um, or Adolf Hitler. Oh my goodness, Hitler. <laughs> I, don't I mean, whether these people, I don't know what these people feel about Hitler, but would they say that Charles Manson is superior to Morgan Freeman, uh, because Charles Manson is white? Yeah, it's, I, I've, you know, I've never lived in the deep South. But from the stories that I've heard from people oh. that have lived there. Hearsay, Your Honor. Okay. Hearsay, well, Your Honor. I mean, we, we can't, you know, I, th I think we need some facts, right? Stories I've heard, I mean, that's pretty unverifiable stuff as a whole, right? Well, I think what we're talking about here is... is uh... And I've, I've, as I've said before on this show, I've never met... A racist. I've lived in a bunch of different countries. Uh, I've moved in a whole bunch of different circles. I myself have never met a racist. Now, when I lived in England in the 70s, the closest that I heard of when I lived in England in the 70s, and this is from my childhood memory, so, you know, if I get the facts wrong, forgive me, but this is the general approximation. There was a, um, uh, I think that there was a, a, gate that was closing as far as getting British citizenship from the ex-colonies, and in particular from India and Pakistan. And there were, so there was a huge influx as the gate was coming down, like this year you can apply for your citizenship to England, and if you don't get it this year, basically you have to never get it, or it's going to be hugely complicated and expensive. And there was a huge influx, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of Indians and Pakistanis into England when I was a kid. And there was some resentment around this, but I'd never heard that the resentment was because they were a different race. The resentment was, you know, the, the because we all lived in these really cramped sardine-like apartment buildings, or was it called flat buildings, flats. And so when the Indians and the Pakistanis would move in, uh, they couldn't speak the language, but that was not a huge deal. Uh, at least a lot of them couldn't. Uh, and that did create challenges, of course, for, you know, schools and all that kind of stuff. But uh, a lot of it was that the smell of the cooking was very pervasive because, of course, uh, India and Pakistan, like a lot of hot countries, they use a lot of spice. And generally, they use a lot of spice to cover up 
the smell of mildly decaying meat because, you know, it's really hard to keep meat fresh in a hot climate. So they use a lot of spice. And there was, I remember some people grumbling about how smelly uh, to their noses the apartment building was become because there were all of these Pakistanis and Indians who were moving in and cooking all this very spicy food. And it did, you know, it, it lingered in the air and, you know, it really did change the composition of what you were inhaling. Uh, was that racism? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there was obviously cultural incompatibilities. And look, <laughs> to be fair to the Indians and the Pakistanis, I'm sure that the smell of um, fried fish and whatever was probably kind of um, off-putting to them as well. But I think that's sort of the closest. Oh, no, no, actually, there, well, there was uh, South Africa is a whole other story, um, which we don't have to get into right now. But I have not met um, people who, who say the kinds of things that racism is called. And look, again, that's just a personal anecdote, but I've not lived a hugely sheltered life. Uh, I've dated women of different races. I've had friends of different races uh, and... Uh, um, I've uh, done plays with people of different races and it's all been in general a very pleasant experience and where there's less than pleasant experiences it's more due to personality in fact it's exclusively due to personality than it is due to race so I I have a, a, a challenge and, and the challenge is I don't like to believe other people based on say so because otherwise I'd believe in a flat earth with certain people. I believe in ghosts. I believe in UFOs. Like the CIA just revealed that uh, at least half of the reported UFO sightings in the 50s were their spy planes that were going ridiculously high and they couldn't talk about them at the time because they were uh, uh, secret. So I keep hearing about all this racism. And when the racism is talked about, particular pieces of evidence are put forward. Now, those particular pieces of evidence almost exclusively tend to dissolve under further scrutiny. So there was a piece of evidence that uh, blacks were um, being arrested. I think it was in New Jersey. They were being arrested more for speeding. And so they set up a bunch of cameras and they did all these tests and they found out that lo and behold, blacks were speeding more. And that's why they were getting dinged more for speeding. In fact, they were getting dinged less for the ratio of speeding that they were doing. There uh, was this uh, Tawana Brawley case that Al Sharpton got involved with uh, where this uh, uh, black girl was supposed to have been uh, uh, abducted and 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 uh, raped by a bunch of white guy, white guys, I think, and 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 all the, and it turned out she just was staying at her boyfriend's place and was afraid of of what her parents would say. The Duke Lacrosse thing, um, where this Chris, Crystal Mangum was a stripper, was at a Duke Lacrosse party. And she said that they all raped her and it turned out it completely fell apart. And then she was in, she ended up in jail for murder, which could have been prevented, of course. Uh, but um, all of this, uh, uh, whenever, and Ann Coulter has a good book on this called, I think it's called Mugged, Racial Demagoguery from the 70s to, to Obama. And the same thing with, with Mark Furman, who was supposed to be this big racist because he used the word nigger. Uh, and it turns out that he used the word nigger in dictating a tough cop mean cop screenplay to a girl he was having sex with at the time, a woman he was having sex with who was writing some screenplay. And he had, in fact, uh, done all of these uh, really great things and uh, with blacks. And he'd had mixed race, uh, Hispanic and black partners who said nothing but great things about him and so on. So I keep hearing about this giant racism that is, is foundational and, and all pervasive and institutional and so on. And it's all well and good, except I've never actually met a racist. And I'm not saying that racists don't exist. I mean, I'm sure that they do. 
But this idea that it's this big, giant, overarching thing in society that needs to consume our time and attention from here to eternity, I'm still waiting. And again, I'm wildly open to it. <laughs> like I would, in a weird way, I'd be kind of relieved if someone could find uh, all of these racial prejudices. There are in-group preferences that are fairly common, that are biological, but I don't know that we'd call that racism. Um, so again, I, I'm not trying to be difficult here. I just want to tell you sort of where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm sort of with Morgan Freeman who was on TV uh, a while back. Basically, uh, I can't remember some guy lemon, I think his name is who was asking him, you know, is there prejudice that prevents people from getting what you want? And then Morgan Freeman said, no, I mean, you and I are proof of that. And I just, I'm really looking to find the person who says, I won't go and see a Morgan Freeman movie because he's black, you know, or something like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say other than I'm not going to accept as a given this massive racism without significantly more evidence. Because every time these things are put forward, there seems to be such a huge amount of manipulation and falsehood going on that... I would assume that if there was better evidence of racism, it would have been pre presented already rather than these these wild series of hoaxes about how racist white people are that then fall apart under closer scrutiny. So I'm still, you know, for me, the jury's still out. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm open. Uh, I'm open to, to this evidence, but the evidence that's put forward is ridiculous uh, and falls apart under the close, even the most cursory uh, scrutiny. And so... I, you know, massive racism and massive rape culture and so on. Like I'm, I'm, I'm open, you know, t tell me the proof, but you know, there's a racist joke that some people tell. Yeah. Okay. But I fully accept that there are some racists. I just have never met them. And I've, I've been to academia. I've been to the art world. I've been in the business world. I grew up poor. Uh, I, I had some money uh, in my twenties and thirties well, really. So, I mean, I've moved, I've been in, you know, I grew up in, in Ireland. I, 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 I was born in Ireland. I grew up in England, lived in Canada, uh, visited uh, all over the world. And I just have a tough time finding this evidence of this massive racism that is, is driving society. So I, this is why I'm asking, like, well, what are we talking about? I can't just take it for granted that it's there and it's real. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you agree, but yes. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, it's hard for me to talk about the Deep South because I've never lived there. I've only met people that have come from there, and we've had discussions about uh, what people were like when they were back home. However, you know, I think if we go back in history, it becomes more apparent, especially in the Deep South, that you know, look, you had the institution of slavery. Slavery is something is that was a a, a institution that was deeply racist. And, uh, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. No, I don't, I don't see how that follows. So have you read any of the pro-slavery, the pro-slavery institution writings? No, no. I mean, look, slavery throughout human history was winner takes loser. Winner takes loser. So whichever army conquered would generally sell off the victims as slaves. This occurred in Africa, this occurred in Asia, this occurred in the Middle East, and this occurred um, uh, in, uh, in the Roman Empire, of course, got a lot of its slaves from its conquered people. So it was not race, fundamentally, that drove slavery or was the division within slavery. It was 
winner versus loser. And tragically for the blacks in Africa, uh, Europeans were significantly technologically advanced compared to the blacks. But the blacks uh, in, in Africa were rounding each other up, marching each other in chains to the, um, to the seashore and selling them to the white slaves, uh, white slavers, sorry. And this occurred uh, throughout the world. Uh, white uh, Irish slaves were sold and worked in the Caribbean um, uh, sugar plantations where they were forcibly raped and interbred with blacks to create a more uh, robust uh, kind of slave. It, it was not fundamentally race that drove slavery. It was conqueror versus, conqueror versus victim, winner versus loser. And, uh, of course, it would have been impossible for whites to go into Africa to get the slaves. And, you know, if you want to know more about this, I've got a whole video called The Truth About Slavery. Yeah, I've watched but, it. Yeah, so the, the, there's no way that whites could have got all those slaves because the average life expectancy for a white man in Africa was 11 months because, you know, just so many diseases and animals and Lord knows what would would um, would kill them off. So it was not, uh, you know, the, the black tribes who conquered other black tribes would go and set, would either keep those slaves or would sell those slaves to the whites. But the fundamental division was victor and vanquished. It was not race. So saying that slavery is fundamentally racist is, I think, a misreading of what happens in war or what happens in conquest in human history. Whoever wins gets to keep the other people as slaves. It's tragic and it's horrible. That's the way war has worked for most of human history. But it's not race. Uh, because, uh, I mean, there were lots of white slaves uh, uh, throughout the world, and they were treated even more, far more brutally in the Middle East than they were in the Americas. So um, I just wanted to to mention that. And of course, sorry, the last thing I'll say is that to to maintain slavery um, the white, in the South, white people had to be uh, forced to join slave hunting patrols, which they hated and resented and didn't want. Uh, and so they were in, in, enslaved in a sense, uh, not as badly, of course, as the blacks, but they were enslaved to maintain the institution and they hated that enslavement. So uh, to me, uh, it's, you know, whoever invents the gunpowder gets to be the slave owner. And uh, it's sad but true, but it's not fundamentally about race that I can see. I think, I think it might depend on what culture is actually engaging in the institution of slavery. Um, think about it like this, Stefan. So let's say, let's say you're a little boy uh, and you're white and you belong to a household that owns slaves and you grow up being around other slave families, and you're, you really are starting to ask the questions of whether or not, uh, why, why do I have this kind of life and why do these other children who, are, who seem just, they're just children, why do they have that kind of life? You know, If you start thinking about the answers that were delivered at, back at that time, the kind of answers that would, be, would have been delivered to kind of keep that culture going, uh, you can... You can easily imagine that the parents would sit down with the child and say, look, you know, this is, um, you know, slavery is part of the Bible. You can find it in part of here. It was, to, it was um, set down as a, as, as by God. And, you know, they would come up with all kinds of racial justifications for what that child would be seeing. And so, yes, but you're talking, sorry to interrupt, John, but you're only talking about one instance of slavery. I mean, how did it work in the ancient uh, Greek empires or the Roman empires, the Byzantine empires and so on? where slavery was common and was not specifically delineated by race. I don't know if that really matters for the United States, if we're going to try and understand racial attitudes. Okay, well, no, no, no. You said, no, you said slavery is racial. 
Now, if you're just talking about Southern United States slavery from, you know, the 17th century until the 19th century, then you're taking a very tiny slice of human slavery and saying that. So if, if you want to talk about just Southern U.S. two and change centuries slavery or 300 and change slavery, that is, as you understand, slavery has been going on for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years throughout human history all across the world until the uh, 18th and 19th centuries when white Western Christians uh, decided to, to end it. So if you're going to talk about a very time, a short time slice uh, of, of slavery in, in the South, right before white people ended slavery and fought to end slavery around the world, we can do that for sure. But when you said slavery is racial, uh, what I'm talking about is there's more to human history than the American South for 300 years. I agree. So the question I asked regarded the regional and cultural differences within the United States and how racism might be expressed. And so what I'm trying to get across, the point I'm trying to get across is that in the Deep South, you have one view and one, one kind of way that, that racism is being expressed. And that's different than in other regions of the United States. So one of the things that's that's curious is you keep saying that you haven't seen a lot of racism. And I'm, I'm sure that that's probably, that's probably true. I have no reason to doubt that. Uh, but that might also be because you're, you're being raised in a different kind of cultural group that doesn't share those values and norms. Does that make sense, Stefan? No, I don't know what that means. I'm not trying to be obtuse. I just don't know what that means. Okay. So, if you had been raised in the Deep South, you probably would have had a higher chance of coming across people with, with racist attitudes. I mean, I was raised in Minnesota, and I definitely have come across people who have had racist attitudes. Oh, absolutely. So have I. I mean, just, just say, for instance, put out videos on Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, and slavery <laughs> – and you will see some astonishingly and amazingly racist attitudes. Tragically, they mostly come from black people, uh, a, not from white people. So how are you able to say then that you haven't really come across a racist? Well, I mean, I'm not sure. Like, personally, I've never met them. And uh, they represent the minority of comments that uh, show up on my videos where race is discussed. But there certainly are some people out there who are like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, white boy must die, whites are a cancer on the world, and so on. And there are a few a minority of, of lunatics uh, and nasty people who also say terrible things about blacks, and, and I'm sure every race, creed, and color that you can imagine. But I don't view a YouTube comment as me having uh, a direct knowledge of somebody who's a racist. I don't know if they're trolls. I don't like I don't know who they are. But I have seen racist comments on my videos. Um, but they're in I haven't run the numbers. But just my gut sense is that um, the, the most virulent racism or the strongest racism seems to come uh, from from blacks or, you know, people who say they're black or have black avatars or whatever or claim that they're black again. I, but that's not scientific. That's just sort of things that I've seen. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I could I could share a couple of stories from people in my family, you know, and uh, and this is growing up in the north, you know, which is which is different. And I think this is one of the points I wanted to to get after is that there might be some ways of expressing racism that we haven't thought about as being racist, but if you start thinking about them, it, they kind of are. 
You know, so um, if we compare like what was going on in the deep south, and we start thinking about okay, well, you've got this caste system that's that's racially based, and it's it's being defended by biblical passages, and there's all kinds of writing and lots of and lots of proof for this. You can go out and read all of this stuff. If we compare that with some of the racism that you see in the north. Um, if you go again, back, uh, but, but what kind of what kind of racism are we talking about here? Again, you're using this word, and I don't know what you're talking about. Are you talking about are you talking about white racism here against blacks specifically and exclusively? In the deep south, we're talking more of white racism against people of other no, races. No, no, you also talked. Hang on, no, but you also talked about Minnesota and your relatives and so on. Yes. So the only people that you're talking about being racists are whites. So when you say racism, you mean white racism no, against blacks. Not at all. Is that what you mean? Not at all. Not at all. Because you've not mentioned not... anything about any other racist being racist. Okay. Well, it's it's sort of uh, it's it's sort of focused on me right now in in my uh, in my background. Okay. So you're racist. I'm white. Um, well, I I grew up around people who had some racist attitudes. Okay. And so one of the things that I'm talking about though is that if I'm Dude, you've you got to be more honest with me. Like, i got to interrupt you here. You're basically just hammering the same boring nail, whites are racist against blacks. And, uh, you know, when I try and talk to you about it, I'll try to widen the conversation or try to get you just keep weaseling out, just keep wriggling off. If you want to talk to me about white racism against black people exclusively, and that's what racism means, we can have that discussion. But I don't feel that I'm getting a particularly clear view of where you're coming from. I think you're insinuating that white people are racist against black people. But then when I ask you if that's the case, you say, oh, no, no, not at all. And it's like, but but you've not talked about anyone else. And, and you know, we're, what, 45 minutes into the conversation, and you've only talked about white racism against blacks in, in your environment and in the South. And I'm saying, well, that's not all of racism, and there's lots of racism that goes on in the world and so on. But you keep kind of gravitating back to this this well of white racism against blacks. And then when I say, well, I haven't met a lot of racists, and that's not, you know, that's not proof definitive or anything like that. In fact, I've never met a racist. Um, and... And then, I, like you're saying, well, there could be ways of being racist that we don't even know about or aren't aware of and so on. And it's like – and then I ask you to make that case and we go back to white racism again, right? I think we're trying – we're sort of drifting, drifting around the point. I'll see if I can be a lot more clear. So here's an example of something that I, I would consider to be a different expression of racism. Um, if you think about public schools and the kind of – the kind of culture that produced public schools. Public schools are coming out of Prussia. Um, they're like they're based in this this real northern European uh, cultural norms, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that that sort of are pushed on every group that's being forced to go into public schools. You know, and it, it's regardless of what kind of cultural norms that they have. And so when we look at people's scores and how well they actually do in in schools like this. Uh, you, you tend to see huge disparities where people who are um, are accepting the the kinds of norms that are being pushed on them from the schools. That's they're, they're going to do a lot better. But other groups that maybe aren't familiar or they they haven't been raised with those with those kind of same cultural values, they're not going to do as well. And a lot of times, the people that aren't raised with those cultural values uh, end up being people of different races. Does that make sense, Stefan? No, because what you're talking about is blacks. 
I mean, are, are you saying that, that Japanese uh, immigrants do really badly in, in schools? They don't. No, they are don't. Are you saying Chinese immigrants do really badly in schools? They don't. They do, they do a lot better than white people in a lot of cases. They do. They do. And, and there are West African blacks who have a 15% higher average income than whites. So you're talking about a particular subculture of blacks. Now, Thomas Sowell has a book called uh, um, Black Rednecks and White Liberals that's worth looking at. Basically, he's saying that a lot of this sort of a thuggish gangster culture in America, in certain sections of American blacks. You, of course, you can't talk about talking about American blacks as a homogenous unit. is like talking about Europeans as a homogenous unit. It doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. But he's saying there are certain aspects of black culture that come directly from uh, Celtic, uh, Northern England, and and Southern Scotland uh, that was transmitted to the blacks by the people who owned the slaves. And it's a very compelling book. And I, you know, I think he makes fantastic arguments. But this idea that um, uh, it's it's racism that causes blacks to do badly. It just really has – you have a tough, tough time trying to find the data that actually supports that. I, I Just by coincidence, uh, I was shoveling my driveway today. I was listening to by, a lecture by Thomas Sowell. And uh, he was talking about how you know the Chinese do better because they just outwork everyone. They just outwork everyone. And he cites data that says if you want to know who's going to get into college – all you do is you look and you don't care about race. You look at how much homework they're doing, how much extra work are they, are they doing. And the more work that people do, the more likely they are to get into college. And it has no bearing on race whatsoever. So blacks who put in as much work as Chinese people have the same chance of getting into college. And again, I'm paraphrasing because I just heard it today. But there is a um, – it's very tough to say that um, – there's irrefutable data that shows um, racial prejudice um, as as the fundamental reason as to why uh, blacks are having trouble succeeding. And um, so that's, you know, when you're talking about, well, races have a certain tough time getting ahead, what you mean is blacks. And there are a number of explanations for that. I don't know what the truth is, right, to, to be honest with you. The explanations range from genetics uh, to to culture, to work ethic, to uh, black racism against the dominant white culture uh, and reinforcement of, oh, if you work hard and you study and you speak eloquently uh, according to sort of mainstream English, you're acting white, you're an Oreo, you know, you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside. And there is, uh, you know, the, the, the un all these conspiracies about, you know, white people putting black music and all the CIA putting drugs. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is, but... It's not as simple as racism. Racism to me to ex explain problems in the black community is as useful as God to explain the origins of the universe. It seems like an answer, but whenever you try and dig in and find the data that really supports it, it all seems to evaporate. And so I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I, I, I have some thoughts, which I've put out many times before, which I'll just touch on briefly here because I want to derail the whole conversation. My thoughts are... I think that um, um, corporal punishment is very high in the black community compared even to the uh, white community. The white community has pretty high corporal punishment in America compared to certainly most European nations, excluding, well, whether you consider England or not uh, a European nation. But I think corporal punishment is very high. Corporal punishment has been shown to um, have uh, a negative effect on IQ uh, and development. Because every time you're hitting a child, you're not negotiating 
with the child. A uh, single parenthood, uh, you know, there's six million people who've written uh, about this uh, stuff. And uh, single parenthood is absolutely disastrous and used to be 22% in the 50s when, of course, blacks were exposed to far more racism. Now it's 75, 76, 77% uh, single mom household, single mom led households in the black community. That's catastrophic. A study just came out that was talking about, you know, we've got this widening income disparity in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is the rise of single motherhood, which is that a single mom has much less opportunity, time and energy and effort that she can expend on helping her children with homework. So the more homework that you get in, in a school system, the more disadvantaged the kids from single parent households are. Now, is there is it racism that makes single families uh, that produces so many single families in the black community? No, of course not. Not fundamentally, because in the 50s, blacks experienced a lot more, even some under Jim Crow, institutionalized racism from the laws. And the, it was like less than a third that what it is now. Into, so it's really tough to find the answer as to the, 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 the problems that blacks have in, the, um, uh, in Western society. But one of the things I think is a huge problem, and I'm not saying this is proven, I'm just saying this is what I think. So, you know, take it with a, as much of a grain of salt as you want. But I think that this constant, constant blaring of you're doomed because whites are racist, you're doomed because your society is racist, whites want to keep you down, whites want to sh stab you and shoot you and choke you, and whites want to pump you full of drugs, and whites want to keep you down. And like every white person just wakes up in the morning and their to-do list is like, keep black people down and somehow elevate uh, Asian people above the income of white people. This is how bad racists we are. We're supposed to be like our race is supposed to be superior. But if we have so much power as a race, we're doing a terrible job of keeping the Asians down or keeping the Indians down or keeping the West African blacks down or, or, or I mean, we're just doing a terrorist, just one particular group that somehow we can differentiate and keep down. And I think that the more that black people are told, and this is not fundamentally the faults of black people. I think it's a lot to do with this really lefty media that goes on. But the more black people are told that there's this massive racism that is just going to keep them down and grind them down and they can't get ahead. I think that that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that the racism is this soft bigotry of low expectations and this constant fencing in of the black community by telling them they can't get ahead because whites are just so racist and whites are just so terrible and whites just want to kill them and whites just want to lock them in prison and so on. I think this creates a massive amount of resentful nihilism within the black community. And I think it makes them punchy. I think it makes them aggressive because I'm putting myself, if somebody had said to me, oh, my God, there's a society out there, blah, 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 blah. They're going to just grind you down. They'll never let you get ahead. They hate you for the color of your skin. You're never going to get anywhere, blah, blah, blah. I mean, my God, to how many self-fulfilling prophecies are we creating by constantly repeating this mantra into the ears of particular sections of the black community saying, you can't get ahead, you can't win, whites, they hate you, they're racist, they, you know, they just want to grind you down, they enjoy fencing you into ghettos and shooting your children's eyeballs full of crack cocaine and blah. My God, I mean, it's, it's how horrendous is that? And, and how, un how unbelievably tragic it is if it's not actually that true. Like, oh my God, like if, if somebody said to me, Steph, there are tigers roaming Canada, like hundreds of thousands or millions of tigers roaming Canada. I would like stay home a lot. 
I'd only go out when absolutely necessary. I get my gross. I become agoraphobic. Now, if there are tigers out there, yes, I appreciate knowing that there are tigers out there. But if the tigers are really rare and everyone keeps telling me there are tigers out there, I'm staying home for nothing. I'm staying home for fear. It's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, the only tigers out there are the words tigers. That's the only thing that's hunting me is the language, not the reality of the flesh-eating mammal that wants to rip my eyeballs out with its back teeth. And that is my sort of concern is that, boy, when you start telling a whole community they're fucked because everyone hates them, by God, you better have some really great data behind that. And that data is really, really, really hard to find. And I've studied this stuff a fair amount. Like, I think it was in Malaysia, Thomas Sowell was talking about today. He said in Malaysia, there's Chinese people and there would be these regular eruptions of pogroms against these Chinese people because they owned a lot of the land, they owned a lot of the rice paddies, they owned a lot of the, the stores and so on. And in a few days, in a few days, more Chinese people would be murdered in a few days than the entire history of lynching in the American South. And they still got ahead. And think of how much the Jews, right? So my concern fundamentally is that if we keep talking about this racism everywhere, racism is the sunlight, racism is what white people wash themselves in the morning and is what they bathe themselves in at night, and racism, racism, racism. And if it's true, then yeah, okay. I mean, let's really make people aware of just this racism and so on, right? And they can't get ahead and so on. But the problem is that the data says it's not true. The data says it's not true. And we can't just ignore the data. That's prejudicial. And the data says that it doesn't matter whether you're black and white. It matters how smart you are. It matters how hard you work. Culture, Thomas Sowell is, is a strong opponent of the IQ thesis, right? The IQ thesis being that um, uh, uh, blacks have a standard deviation on average lower IQ than whites in America. And I think it's two standard deviations in sub-Saharan Africa. And he is a, and he makes great arguments. He is a, a strong opponent and has been a very strong opponent of the IQ thesis as to why uh, blacks aren't doing well. So he would be on the other side of people like Arthur Jensen and um, uh, Charles Murray and, and um, Richard Hernstein and the, the bell curve guys. And he makes, a, he makes a great case. He actually believes that it's culture that is causing these problems. In other words, this is a culture of resentment, this culture of can't win, don't try, can't get ahead. And, this, and, and if this culture is false, this culture of you're doomed because whites are so racist, if this is false, then it is actually creating a self-perpetuating and self-sustained problem in Perhaps America. Because let, let, me just, let me just finish, and then I'll, I'll shut up and let you get your whole thing in, right? And the reason being, John, is that if there is this belief in certain sections of the black community, this can't win, don't try, uh, racism, rage, you know, the only reason I'm not getting ahead is because white guys keep me down, then it creates a lot of aggression, right? It, it creates a lot of aggression and it creates a belief that participating in the free market is collaborating with the enemy. That getting an education is acting white. And because acting white is being a nasty, bad, evil person, 
then they're really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And then you get groups uh, of blacks in certain areas of the black community, and they they scorn education, they pursue drug use, you've got the violent rap lyrics, you've got this uh, anti, anti-hero nihilistic uh, subculture, and they don't feel bound by the rules of society. Because they feel like, okay, well, if America is basically still a slave-owning racist society, I don't have to obey the laws. In fact, not obeying the laws is like Paul Revere. It's like the Underground Railroad. It's kind of, yes, I mean, this, right, this uh, Rosa Parks didn't obey the rules run by the government that you had to sit in the back of the bus, and she's heroic, right? It's, it's, and so they get this, well, let's just not obey the rules, and a lot of them, of course, don't obey rules that are actually not bad, you know, like protection of property, person, and so on. And so then what happens is because there's this belief that there's all this racism out there and you can't get ahead and you're doomed and white people just hate you and so on, there's a race war created that isn't necessary and isn't supported by the data, but is only driven by the narrative, is only driven by the language, is only driven by the dialogue. The only predator is in the dictionary. And then what happens is... White people look at this surly, violent, criminal bunch of people. I'm not talking about all blacks, but just a certain subculture within the black community that buys all of this stuff. They look at that stuff and they say, whoa, you know, there sure are a lot of blacks breaking the laws. And there sure are a lot of blacks in prison and this, that and the other, right? And then something becomes more credible to believe because it's been talked about so long, right? So just throwing a couple of stats out there, right? According to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, uh, non-Hispanic blacks accounted for almost 40% of the total prison and jail population in 2009. And blacks are like 12% of the population, 13% of the population. The triple represented, and given that it's basically young black men who are a couple of percentage points of the population, it could be like 10 to 1 or more. And 2010 incarceration rates by race per 100,000 U.S. residents of all ages, adult rates would be higher. Uh, Whites, 769 per 100,000. Hispanics, 1,908 per 100,000. Blacks, 4,607 per 100,000. And so what happens is because there's this constant narrative of racism being pounded into people, pounded into people all the time, the blacks in particular... And nobody stops and thinks, well, if whites are so good at oppressing other races, why are the Asians doing so well? Why are other blacks doing so well? And then what happens is the blacks in certain communities give up. And they view doing well as collaborating with racial Nazi whites. And they turn to crime and they turn to nihilism. They don't think for tomorrow. And then what happens is whites see a whole bunch of criminals who are blacks, and say, oh my God, (laughs) what the hell is going on? Maybe there is something. But it's not real. It's not supported by the data that exists prior to all of this uh, language or independent of all of this language. So I'm happy to talk about racism, but I'm not going to take it as a given until I see really strong data that shows me that blacks who are as intelligent and work just as hard as everyone else mysteriously get pushed into the background, onto the underground, or where there's data that shows that blacks are arrested not more than whites, but disproportionate to the crimes. Or blacks who get longer sentences don't get longer sentences because they are 
um, doing more crimes or have a longer rap sheet or whatever. But I want to see the real data that shows this racism because you and I both know that if people are wrong about this all-pervasive white racism, they are dooming hundreds and hundreds of thousands of black youths to unnecessary lives of nihilism, violence, and despair. To me, if we're going to do that, we better be damn sure that we're right about all this racism because otherwise it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the end of my soapbox. It's all over to you now. So here's something to, here's something to consider, I think. Um, think, about the, think about the message that black youth receive when they're being forced into public school. I mean, they're, they're being forced this narrative that this entire race, there's all this racism out there and people are going to be pushing you down. And it kind of gets you into thinking that there's a victim mentality and you can't get out of the public school. I mean, you're, I mean you can, but you're, you're literally forced to go and get this um, propaganda. Wait, why can't blacks get out of the public school? Oh, they, they certainly can. But you know what I'm, what I'm saying is that all children... Well, no, 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 dude, dude. But this is exactly what I'm talking about. You just, like, first of all, you're talking about black youths. And I said, we cannot talk in aggregate about the black communities because there's a wide variety of them in the U.S. Some are native, some are southern, some are northern, some are from other countries and other cultures. And you just said blacks can't get out of the public school system. A, 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 an absolutely false statement. That's an absolutely false statement that you just applied to all blacks, giving them helplessness. This is exactly what I'm talking about. They can homeschool. They can unschool. They can go for charter schools. They can go to private schools. They, you know, like, I mean, particularly if it's a mom who's not working, which is unfortunately quite a lot of black communities, the mom can homeschool. But you just gave this whole thing where blacks are, are doomed and forced to the government school system without reminding them that they have as many options as anyone else as far as getting out of this system goes. But you see, you don't even notice that you're doing it and you're saying maybe there's this subtle kind of racism out there that nobody knows about or nobody notices or is really hard to see. You just did that. You just did that. You stripped of all black parents any right or responsibility or possibility of getting their kids out of government school system. And then you tell me, well, maybe there's this racism out there that's really hard to see. But you just did it. Stefan, you're making my point, actually, that I was trying to make. And the point that I'm trying to make is is that perhaps this this narrative of low expectations is racist your narrative and no your narrative so. of low I expectations guess, you know i guess so i mean i wait 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 what do you mean I'm you guess saying, so did you not did you not just tell me and the world that blacks cannot get out of the, go- the government system of schooling i i misspoke okay okay i mean i'm i'm trying to I'm trying to condense what I'm saying, you know, just to just to, trying to get the the message out there, and I misspoke. Okay, but when but you I'm condense things, say, John, when you condense things, you can't say false things, right? If I say two and two make five, I'm not condensing two and two make four. It doesn't take a lot longer to say it can be tougher to get out of the government school system. But but saying blacks can't get out, that's not that's not taking that's, shortcuts. It's just saying things that aren't true. That's of course that's not true, but. When you look at the when you look at look at the statistics of of where people are going to school, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's there's a narrative that is being forced on people uh, on people that um, 
that it's it's kind of like a, a victimization narrative that you're that you're a victim and you need our help and that you've got to have uh, you know you have all these services and I, I just I wonder if that in and of itself could be racist. Well, I mean, I think that um, a lot of people have written about the degree to which the Democratic Party in particular, which was the founder, like the KKK was an offshoot of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party has resisted uh, almost every advancement that the Republicans have put forward in the area of, of civil rights. And Republicans oppose the welfare state because partly because they perceive it to be horribly racist. Okay. And uh, so I, I think this um, this paternalism towards uh, blacks to me is is the the biggest challenge the biggest challenge i said this years and years and years ago in this podcast it's a fundamental question that i've always had about race relations which is do you want me to care if you're black or not do you want me to care if you're hispanic or not do you want me to care if you're asian or not do you want me to care if you're white or not now if you want me to care about your race then you're asking me, you're inviting me, you're kind of demanding that I take your race into account as some sort of primary mechanism for dealing with you. In other words, you're saying race is primary in how I should deal with you, which is demanding that I be a racist, which I won't do. I don't want to care if anyone is any color in particular or any creed or anything. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Now, when it comes to things like affirmative action, well, okay, this is hard-coded in. And again, to return to one of my favorite thinkers in general, Thomas Sowell, he says affirmative action is disastrous for blacks. The only people that helps is it helps black people with PhDs get tenure. But it, it doesn't help people with less experience, less capacity. So people with a tr proven track record get moved ahead really quickly through affirmative action. But people who don't, blacks who don't have that um, track record, who don't have that resume, who don't have that stamp of approval, those blacks end up not being hired because the, the best way to give people a chance is to allow them to be fired easily, right? I mean, and, and this is true of everyone. Uh, I mean, just look at what's happened to the French labor market where you can't fire anyone and nobody wants to get, nobody gets hired anymore. And uh, so um, he's been a, a foe of affirmative action. And of course, affirmative action has been disastrous for so many uh, blacks because with affirmative action, blacks get promoted regardless of competence because they just have to fulfill a quota. Of course, the whole thing was put in. There won't be quotas. And then, of course, immediately it becomes quotas. And so what happens is the, the, the blacks who graduate to employers, they don't know which blacks have graduated because they are competent, smart, and great people. And the blacks who are there because of affirmative action. And so the value of a degree for a black is diluted, is lowered. And, and that is, it makes it less of an incentive to go to, to college and all that. It's just the usual law of unintended consequences when you bring coercion into the mix. But I, um, I, will not, I will not view racism as a foundational issue within society other than racism created by belief in racism, right? I mean, it's the whole, the whole thing that Henry Ford said. He said, if he says, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You know, if you think there's racism, you're right. <laughs> if you think there isn't racism, you're right. And again, I don't mean there's no racism. I mean, there are people who believe all kinds of crazy stuff in the world. There are flat earthers. There are people who believe no one ever landed on the moon. There are all kinds of crazy stuff. Even though you can see a telescope and see stuff on the moon that was left there, they believe that people never went to the moon. 
People believe all kinds of crazy stuff. But nobody goes to physics conference and say, we have a huge problem of people who believe that you can't send a rocket through the Van Allen belt and land on the moon and come back. They don't even bother with those people because they're such fringe lunatics. Who cares? This is not where we put people front and center in social uh, debates. You know, geographers don't get together every year uh, and and spend 98% of their conference talking about how they got to re-educate the flat earthers into understanding that the world is round. They just they're like, okay, there's a bunch of fringe lunatics out there. Let's move on with the human story. Let's move on with the progress of the planet. And let's leave these racist idiots behind in the same way we leave the flat earthers behind or the people who still believe the sun is the center of the solar system, the, the, the earth is the center of the solar system. So I just, I mean, I feel that this, this, this language is, has become such a self-fulfilling prophecy. And again, just to be clear, if there's massive evidence out there that in year, I mean, I took a whole course on, 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 on race relations in, in college. I read about a whole bunch of it, studied it. And I mean, again, I'm no expert, but this is just my own study. But if there is, um, if there is all of this data that shows racism, then it has to show how it's only blacks that um, uh, are the people, white people are, are racist against. It has to show how white people promote the interests of uh, Asians and other people who are doing better than white people. It has to deal with the IQ uh, challenge. Uh, it has to deal with the work ethic challenge. It has to deal with the culture challenge. It has to normalize for all of that. And if after all of that work is done, there's still clear evidence of racism, I will absolutely revise my opinion. But every time I've seen those numbers break down, when you compare apples to apples, racism seems to pretty much vanish. And that is my concern, that we just keep talking about it. Or like, well, I think it was Morgan Freeman who said, can we just shut up about it? <laughs> like, can we just stop talking about it and see what happens? What if the what if the fact that we can't stop talking about it, and when I talk about we, I mean, I'm including myself because I'm talking about it. What if that's racist? Then stop talking about it. So I, I, I think that's the that's the point that I'm trying to bring up. Is that you know this this expectation in especially the culture that I grew up of like there's there's this racism out there and that you know and then people are are being taught this you know that it leads to a lot of the things that we're talking about and I and I really wonder if that attitude in and of itself is racist. Well, it is, and and the tragic thing, and this goes back to. Um the truth about uh, immigration, is that it was an explicit communist goal to stoke resentment among blacks in America to destabilize the system. You know, that's, that's, this, this all left. It's all, it's all coming from the left. And the left is unbelievably racist, in my opinion and experience, and in a lot of the data. You know, this, this constant, constant race baiting that goes on is all part, and you can look at the, the minutes from the Communist International from the 1920s, and Stalin was very explicitly said, look, we're going to get involved with the blacks in America, and we're going to stoke their resentment against the whites, and that's how we're going to destabilize capitalism in America. And this, this, is, just, this is just Saul Alinsky's uh, Rules for Radicals. This is just standard infiltration and subversion that comes from the left, that comes from the communists. They do it with blacks, and they do it with women. And it's incredibly racist and it's incredibly sexist. But they don't give a flying fuck how many black people they hurt. And they don't give a flying fuck 
how many women they hurt, as long as they can crush the free market and gain power. These are assholes of almost infinite degree. They don't fundamentally give a shit about black people, and they don't fundamentally give a shit about women. They fundamentally give a shit about creating groups who resent the existing order, who believe that freedom, freedom to trade, is unjust, is brutal, is exploitive. Women only get paid 70 cents on the dollar. Blacks only get paid, blah, blah, blah. Blacks, uh, no, no. Freedom is freedom. Freedom is, is choices and consequences. You can choose to say that adopting a mainstream dialect, studying, working hard, uh, and, and going to college or whatever, or starting a business, you can choose to say that that is all acting white and, and that is all terrible and that's collaborating with the white racist overlord enemy. You can choose to do all of that. And guess what? You're not going to make much money on this planet. And you can choose to say, oh, you know, the fact that women choose to work part-time because they kind of like spending time with their children and so on. And there's lots of reasons why women make less money than men. Uh, and, and then you have to explain why, if there's this incredible pool of underpaid blacks and underpaid women, why some enterprising capitalist hasn't swooped in and made a complete fortune by paying them 5% more. And then some other guy comes in and pays... Capitalists are always looking for ways to exploit underpaid people by paying them a tiny little bit more. And if there's this incredible t talent of and pool of blacks and, and women, God, why isn't anyone hiring them and making an absolute fortune? Well, because it's not as unjust as it seems. So if blacks listen to these people who say you're screwed because there's white racism, and these are not the friends of black people, they don't give a flying fuck about, rap, uh, about black people, and they don't give a flying fuck about women. All they care is about stoking resentment, causing problems, making the system non-functional so that they can say, well, you know, we gave freedom a try. Now it's time for central planning. Let's all join the socialist communist bandwagon and ride it off to the dark patch of hell no, the North Korea where we can all live together as one big, unhappy, miserable, flying fuck of a family in the future. So, yes, it is horribly racist. Uh, and, and this has always been the problem that comes out of the left and comes out of communism. Don't get me wrong. What comes out of the right can be hugely problematic too. But it is horribly racist. And um, it is one of these self-fulfilling prophecies. And they don't give a shit. Look, if you want black people to do better, start confronting them about the single-parent household. Obama has got a fantastic bully pulpit to start talking to people about the single-parent household and the degree to which that affects uh, blacks. Blacks were doing pretty well in the post-war period, climbing their way out of poverty. Uh, the, the, I mean, blacks went from, uh, I think it was um, Robert Higgs who pointed out, that blacks went from the 19th century almost 100% illiteracy to 50% literacy in a matter of decades. That is incredible. That is fantastic. That is wonderful. And they were doing pretty well getting out of poverty in the post-war period. And then... You know, communists came along, social welfare state comes along, the Democrats uh, come along, and it was just a mess. I'll just give you one last quote from this. Um, the communist... Uh, um the Communist International Comintern was an international communist organization based in Moscow. It began operating in 1919 under the supervision of the Soviet Communist Party, and its chief goal was spreading communism and establishing... Uh, oh, sorry. Do do. Establishing Soviet-style governments throughout the world. A few months later, Communist Party USA, CPUSA, was established as part of the Comintern network, began operating as a subsidiary of the Communist Party in Russia. In 1922, the Comintern held its fourth international congress and put the topic of African-Americans on its agenda. The following goal was established after discussions ended. Quote, 
The Fourth Congress considers it essential to support all forms of the black movement which aim either to undermine or weaken capitalism and imperialism or to prevent their further expansion. The language of that is very, very important. Didn't say to support all forms of the black movement to assure racial equality under the law in the United States. No, no, no. They said they consider it essential to support all forms of the black movement which aim either to undermine or weaken capitalism and imperialism or to prevent their future expansion. CPUSA received a $300,000 subsidy. This is in the 20s when that was a lot of money. They recruited and trained black communists and organized protests against the U.S. government. Many black leaders were sent to Moscow for further education. The party's subversive activities quickly attracted the eyes of the government and the, uh, the FBI. And uh, you can um, uh, look at the truth about the race war, which is we're going to put out today, the truth about um, uh, immigration. And uh, you just look at the voting patterns, right? I mean, the voting patterns uh, of blacks are almost exclusively towards, uh, towards the left. I mean, when was the last time that a major black civil rights leader said that um, what we need to do is we need to uh, reduce uh, the size of government. We need to cut back on government unions. Or we need to uh, stop licensing uh, to the point where a third of Americans need a government slip of paper and permission to actually have a goddamn job. Uh, and we need to uh, privatize the schools. I mean, this just doesn't happen. All, all, all that in general you hear, with some exceptions, uh, again, to repeat Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L, just read the guy, watch the guy, you'll come away. Like The guy's like incredibly brilliant. And, and every time I listen to him, like I get <laughs> the, the, the hairs go up on the back of my neck because, uh, you know, not much to go up <laughs> on the top. And, um, uh, but it is, um, with, the, with a few exceptions, there is almost an exclusive focus on the civil, in the civil rights movement of more government, more government, more government, more government with the implicit assumption that freedom is terrible for blacks. And that makes sense if you believe that in a state of freedom, whites are horribly racist. In other words, they will sacrifice their own economic self-interest in order to exercise racism against equally qualified and intelligent people. And the idea that in a state of freedom, human beings act terribly is the foundational driver of totalitarianism regimes or ideologies like those on the left. So... Anyway, I got to move on to the next caller. But listen, John, first of all, can I really thank you for calling in and talking about this? Thanks. Thanks, Stefan. I guess I, there's, there's one last real quick thing I wanted to point out. And that's then, and then, you know, thank you for adding me to the call. I really appreciate it. Um, I just, I think we, we identified at least two forms of racism just in our discussion. You know, at least the one that you know, the one that you're talking about is one that we don't really talk about in our society. I mean, I came to libertarianism from the left, and I mean, I have a lot of things. Well, oh, I know. <laughs> uh, you didn't have to tell me that. I know. I have a lot of things to unlearn. You know, and I think I really appreciate you pointing out some of those those like what I'm calling when I'm misspeaking or something. That's not. It's not. It, that's something that I learned from the left, and I'm trying to undo a lot of that stuff because I do. I think that that's fundamentally some of those attitudes are racist but we don't like society in general and other liberals they don't really consider them to be racist i mean we only sort of look at slavery in the deep south and how that was racist at one time so i'm um, thank you steph i appreciate the call and uh i'll let you move on to the next caller yeah and look i'll start respecting the left's focus on racism when they start talking about israel but that's perhaps a topic for another time all right who do we have up next 
All right. Up next today is Jason. Jason wrote in. Please, God, let it be Morgan Freeman. No. <laughs> <laughs> I will be a Christian. I, you know what? I'll actually be a Zoroastrian. I might even tinker, tinker with Satanism if the next caller was Morgan Freeman. Up next is Thomas Sowell. Oh, that would be nice. I mean, I feel that if you simply speak someone's name enough, <laughs> they're going to show up. That's my theory. Just say it three times, Steph, and he's going to show up behind you with a meat cleaver. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> All right. Up next is Jason. Jason wrote in and said, what causes a person to change and what are the limits that can be expected as per change in a person? What causes a person to change? Jason, was it? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Hello. Okay. Hello. Is there anything you want to say before I rudely start talking about this topic? Uh, no, no, that's that's okay. I, I'm it's good to talk to you. Uh pretty excited your formulation of the language is a challenge because if something causes someone to change they're not really changing are they (laughs) do you know what i mean like if it's kind of deterministic it's like saying which rock do i have to push for that rock to decide to start going down the hill well if i'm pushing it the rock isn't deciding and if the rock is deciding i don't need to push it so when you say what causes someone to change it's almost like you're saying what is the last domino before change you know, like it seems like you're sort of taking the free willy stuff out, and I just want to make sure that's not the case. If I'm misunderstanding that. Oh no, I've 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 listened to all your uh, your uh, arguments on uh, det- uh, the determinism argument, uh, and uh, yeah, I I, uh, I I understand the whole free will part where we we, we come in and we we uh, there's there's something more than just the rock falling down the hill, right? It's uh, there's, there's something so can you tell me can you tell me what kind of change you're referring to? Well, okay, so I'll give you the ex- the example that I'm thinking of. Uh, like uh, I when I uh, last time I was at work, I was uh, you know pretty leftist, uh, that kind of engineer. And then I studied a bunch of stuff uh, during my layoff period, and I I so different that the people that I, I I've come back to to work with after the layoff, which was about two years. The people that I've come back to work with, uh, uh, they, they, they offer me, you know, some of the same kind of engineer that I was used to. And I'm just like, wow. Sorry, some of the same kind of what? Uh, like, for example, um, uh, no, I just thought, I wasn't sure what the word was. Geneer? Yeah, yeah. So like a, a liberal kind of show. And then I'm like, well, that's not really what I'm interested in. So I, I, I uh, consider myself as being like very changed from that point. So uh, I'm saying, what what do you think would have would it have been just just the 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 fact that I I learned a lot more since then, or like uh, what uh, and then and then what are the the limits that we can expect to see from someone like my uh, stepdad? He I I've been talking to him for years, and there's really been no no change. Like he he just gets irrational. Right, right. Now I'm gonna put forward a hypothesis. I'm not saying it's proven, it's not syllogistic, but see where it lands for you. And I'll try and keep it brief and, and let me know if it makes sense. Is that is that okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. To me, the fundamental change that occurs in a human being is the elongation of perspective and the concomitant rebalancing of costs and benefits. To take a simple example... In the, for the next five minutes, 
it's always to the advantage of the smoker to keep smoking, right? Okay. But if the smoker thinks about sort of long-term health, then the cost-benefit of the next cigarette versus, say, dying a horrible death from lung cancer, they change, right? Does, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's the same thing. So when I was younger, I had, oh, a temper. I had a temper. And what I found was that, and I remember, so I remember when I was a kid, we just moved to Canada. I was 11. I had a, I don't know if kids even play with these anymore. They probably do. It was a little racing set. So you put these cars on these grooves and in these black tracks and you had these little squeezy things that supplied more or less electricity and the cars would go race around. You try not to have them fall off the track. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. I'm thinking Hot Wheels, but I'm also thinking Hot Wheels are just those little cars, like the little metal ones, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what they're called, those car sets? <laughs> no, I was very young. Okay, model trains, I know. I did model trains. I used to sleep when I was a kid. Um, I used to sleep under my train set because I had this little tiny bedroom, and there was no room for a train set except over me. Um, so I just remember falling asleep to the smell of sawdust and <laughs> plaster of Paris and, <laughs> and molten plastic from when I was working on stuff. But anyway, and I was really uh, frustrated one time, and I was trying to put these tracks together, and they just they they were horrible to clip in together. They had to hold pretty tight, and because the the, the electricity had to have contacts, like train tracks, I guess, they had to have contacts that stayed touching, so that the electricity would go all the way around the track. Otherwise, it'd be like and they stop. So you really they were and they were really tough to to clip together, and I was struggling with one, and I was getting really frustrated. I think I was eleven or so. I know, no, in fact, I, let's see, yeah, I was 11. And what happened, I, I got so angry that I just, I stood up and I ripped them apart. And I broke them. And I remember looking down at that and saying, hmm, <laughs> well, given that the train tracks, can't, sorry, given that the race tracks can't suffer, I just broke them and now I can't use these two pieces. And I remember I went to my mom and I said, okay, mom, I, I'm really confused here. I really got angry. I broke this racetrack set or these two pieces. Is that, does that even make any sense? Like, does it make any sense? I felt like it felt better in the moment to rip these things apart. But now I'm sitting here thinking, well, wow, what did I do? Now, I don't remember what my mom answered. And of course, going to my mom for advice on temper was probably not the best thing. But, you know, she was the only person around who I could ask. Now, I uh, uh, struggled with a temper throughout my early to mid-teens. But what I thought of during that struggle, and this is when I started reading books on self-knowledge, psychology, and so on. And what I thought of during that struggle, Jason, was what's my life going to be like if I have a bad temper? What's my life going to be like if I had a bad temper? And I thought of the people I admired. And I thought of the people that I admired. How many do I know have a really bad temper? And I thought, well, not many. Like a friend of mine's father is a man I still admire. And um, he was a very gentle and, and peaceful but, but strong and firm person. 
And so I kind of, ha- I mean, I knew I had the goal of not having as bad a temper or, you know, I didn't want to get rid of anger completely. I don't want sort of the overreaction to the other direction. And a lot of it had to do with, well, who do I admire and how do they live? And what will my life be like if I have this temper? I mean, who's going to want to spend time with me? What's my career going to be like? What's, you know, what's it going to be like for me? Because, you know, you've got to work with people in your life, right? And that sort of struggle for me had to do with thinking beyond the satisfactions of the moment. Like what emotionally satisfies you in the moment when you have a bad temper is to yell at someone or to break something or whatever, right? Now, I would imagine that for you, and obviously correct me if I'm off base here, Jason, but I think that for you, probably you did a zoom out, a zoom out. And a zoom out is what happens when you you don't live in your life. You know, like life like a centrifuge, like a wind tunnel. You're just flapping your way through the moments. But a zoom out, I talked about this when I uh, was diagnosed with cancer. But a zoom out is when you zoom out at the big picture of your life. And you say, not what do I want in the moment? What satisfies my needs in the moment? What's going to work for the next 10 minutes or the next week? But what's going to work for my life. What is good? What do I want? What was going to work for my life as a whole? And if you had something like that, where you say, well, it's tough to quit smoking, but I don't want to die. Well, it's tough to quit drinking, but I don't want to die. Well, it's tough to eat less, but I don't want to be fat because obesity takes like eight years off your lifespan or something. And so if you have the zoom out, then you get a bigger picture. Most people are navigating the woods without a GPS, without a map, but just by looking at their feet. You know, do I, is the next thing I step in squishy or solid? Do I have a log to climb over? Is there a, a stream I've got to ford or go around or jump across or something like that? All they're doing is they're navigating their way through the woods by looking down, looking at their feet the whole time. Now, the zoom out is, you know, that you ever do that thing on Google Earth? And you just, you go into Stella, right? You just zoom out. And you get a big picture of where you are and where you're going. Now, I believe that that zoom out is foundational to a change that sticks. You know, I mean, we're just past New Year's uh, resolution. And uh, the only, I don't do New Year's resolutions because to me that would be a way of saying, don't do it for the other 364 days a year, right? <laughs> no. The only thing I talked about with New Year's resolution was somebody left a comment on a video and said, whoa, super high def, 60 frames a second. I'm like, yep, that's my New Year's resolution. <laughs> but um, we are in the time where people make these New Year's resolutions. And for me, when I used to go to a gym, um, Jan- I hated January. <laughs> I hated January because in January at the gym would be all these people who made the resolution to get in shape, right? And they'd be clogging up the machines and they'd be sweating up the place and uh, not knowing anything about gym etiquette, about wiping down the machines and only doing 20 minutes of the cardio or 25 or whatever the limit is, only doing two sets and letting other people work in. They basically just came in and clogged up the place and you knew in three weeks they'd be gone. But for those three weeks, you know, of course, the gym, the gym people love it because they get a year's membership and people only show up for three weeks. So... 
So this is the time where everyone has their New Year's, no sugar, <laughs> I'm not going to drink, no smoking, I'm going to get fit, I'm going to, right? And, but right, but why are they not able to sustain it? They're not able to sustain it because they give themselves one day a year where they do the zoom out. They say, what's the big picture of my life? Where do I want to be? Why do people save money rather than spend money? It's more fun in the moment to spend money. It's better for your future to save money. And, you know, all other things being equal. Because they don't do the zoom out. And they don't zoom out to say, okay, well, if I want to retire at 60 or 65, how much money am I going to need to sit down with a financial advisor, at least do the math? So how much do I need to save? What I need to do to work towards it? And so on, right? And so I think that the zoom out is essential to any kind of committed change. And, um, I, I, you know, I wasn't fit when I was in my early to mid teens. And then when I was somewhere between 16 and 15 and 16, um, I just, I just was like, is this how I want to be? No. So I actually started jogging around. I remember jogging around this tiny apartment that I was living in, just jogging around. There was a little loop around the kitchen, living room. And then I just started running. I started exercising, joined the swim team, water polo team, cross country team, you name tennis. And I just, you name it. And since then, I've been committed, even through chemotherapy, committed to exercising three times a week at a minimum. And I do my shows standing up and I write my books standing up. And I just, because, you know, sitting is about the same as, as smoking when it comes to your health. And it's because of this, this zoom out that, that you can do and say, well, what kind of body, like what kind of physiology, what kind of body do I want to have when I'm 60? Because I'm borrowing my body from, you know, for 12 years until I deliver it to the 60. And then the 60 is going to deliver it to the 70 and so on and so on. Right? We'll join Peter Thiel at 120, I guess. But um, that zoom out, I think, is what's fundamental to change. And the more you can give people the the, the more you can give people principles, the more you can give them abstract thinking, the more you can give them philosophy, I think the more likely they are to be able to do that zoom out. Because philosophy is a big zoom out. You know, when we do something like uh, the history of the First World War or the truth about slavery, we're zooming way out, right? So this this first caller was wanted to talk about, he said, like, all slavery is the antebellum South for like 200 years or whatever. And we got to zoom out from that to look at the bigger picture. If you only look at black-white relations in this time, then you're not looking at the, you're not zooming out enough. And so a lot of what I do in this show is try to get people to zoom out and to look at the bigger picture, where they are, where they've come from, where they want to go. Because you can't navigate by looking down at the ground. All you can do is get through the next step and the next step and the next step. What I want people to do is zoom out, get a map, pin a destination, and then take the next step towards their destination rather than stepping over the next obstacle in their way. Does that... Make any sense? Oh yeah, yeah that uh, yeah that 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 helps clear things up a lot actually. Yeah, the cost to benefit and the uh, and the reality check. Is that? Yeah, I mean, in the short run, stealing is easier than working. In the long run, working is easier than stealing. So if you get people to zoom out, right, then they will have. I think be able to make more rational perspectives. Um, you can lose a fr like they say. Reputation takes a lifetime to build and can vanish in a moment, and a friendship can take a long time to build and can be destroyed in five minutes or less. 
And if people understand all of that, then they're more measured, they're more rational. It doesn't mean they don't have conflicts and so on. Like it always bothers me in, in conflicts with people when they start using absolutes. You always, you never, this kind of stuff, right? Because that's just escalating language. It just makes things worse. It makes things more absolute. It brings up defenses and so on. And that may feel like you're winning in the moment. And that's why people tend to get into these horrible conflicts that, that wreck their hearts is they want to win in the moment. They want to dominate in the moment because they're just used to win-lose. That's why people get divorced. It's because they make it, you know, when I was best man at someone's wedding many years ago and I gave him a speech basically like, how you feel today, that is your marriage. This is what you always need to come back to. There'll be times of stress and strain and conflict and disappointments and so on. But this is the living heart of your marriage. This is what you need to return to. This is your oasis in what can seem like a desert of intimacy at times. And that is uh, what I still believe as strongly. Uh, and people blow up their marriages and blow up their friendships for the sake of an immediate gain, a victory in the moment. And it's only after they have lost everything that they realized what a pyrrhic victory or what a shallow victory that was. So, yeah, that's that's my thought about. Now, why why people decide to zoom out, why they go Google Earth rather than Street View, I don't know. Right. I mean, I, I certainly try to give people as many principles as I can to enable the, the, the zoom out, to give them the rocket, the helium balloon that gets them up out of the forest so they can map a bigger destination for themselves. You know, you've heard me say to people, OK, well, so if you marry this person and they want to hit your kids, well, what's going to happen this? What's going to happen that? Or if your parents are still abusive and what happens if they're around your kids? Trying to get them the bigger, longer view so they can make decisions, not just about stepping over this log, but which continent they want to end up in in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, <clears throat> well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. I'm glad it was helpful. And uh, yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. I, you know, you, you can't, you can't make people change, right? But you can give them the tools for change so that they can if they want, right? Like I, I can't make someone build a chicken coop, <laughs> right? But I can at least make sure they have the tools. So if they want to build a chicken coop, they can. Uh, and I think giving people the tools is the best you can do. You say, well, how much is my stepdad going to change and so on? Well, you can give them two things. You can give them inspiration through your change and you can tell them how you did it. You can give them the tools on, on how you did it. After that, it really has to be up to them. That's the freedom and responsibility we have to give other people because the moment we try to interfere with someone's free choice, we are showing contempt for who they are. You know, interfering with someone else's free choice is like some OCD central planner interfering with the free market. No, you set up the rules, you set up the standards, you set up what would be called the laws in a free society, and then people do what they want. You know, you set up the rules of chess, you don't tell people which moves to make, because then you're saying that you don't trust them at all. And um, the lack of trust that comes out of the management of other people uh, is something that we think we're doing it to reduce anxiety and to help the relationship. But all we're doing is we're confirming that we don't think the other person will ever make the decision that they should. And uh, that is a surefire way to, to end up with a terrible relationship. So uh, with regards to your stepdad, you can show him your change. If he's interested or curious, you can tell him how you did it uh, or, you know, whatever your thoughts are about how you did it. And um, you can offer to support him, you know? Yeah. It's a great chicken coop. Uh, here are my plans. Here are the tools. If you want them, I'm happy to help if you want. But, you know, you got to do the hammering. 
Uh, and that's, I think, the most respect we can give to people. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes he, uh, he'll, <laughs> he'll come back with the, well, how old are you? And uh, how old am I? And that means I'm right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a tough thing to say. I mean, Einstein was in his 20s. And uh, Bill Gates founded companies in his 20s. So did Steve Jobs. And that blew away all of the uh, prior economic assumptions. There are huge numbers of geniuses who, you know, there's an old saying in math and physics which says, if you haven't made your big mark by the time you're 30, you're not going to. So this idea that um, somehow age has prevalence over youth, well, just uh, ask him to rootkit a, a cell phone <laughs> and see how well he does and uh, or whatever it is that you're good at based on some new paradigm. But yeah, this idea that, that there's automatic value in age is like saying that a tree is wiser because it's got more rings. No, it's just older. Most people, when they're older, have just hardened their prejudices. <laughs> they haven't come up with any particular or original thinking. Uh, and um, so the idea that um, – does I mean, does he use a cell phone? Oh, yeah. 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 Does he know that the the engineers who created and designed that cell phone are almost certainly closer to your age than his? Oh, I don't think he thought a lot into that. <laughs> but that's the zoom out, right? I mean, the idea that if you just don't die, you're wiser, you know, all we have to do is stave off death. And that's the equivalent of self-knowledge, wisdom and philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or as Mike's saying, yeah, he should just use the oldest cell phone because it's the best. You know, the ones that you had to stand outside, point at the satellite and not make sure there weren't any trees overhead and basically with the size of a shoebox. <laughs> Because they're the oldest cell phones. I'm sure they're the best. Does he want the latest, newest model, the youngest model? Of course he does. <laughs> Who does he find more attractive? You know, uh, Jennifer Lawrence or Margaret Thatcher? Well, she was older, so she has to be hotter, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think he'd do too well with those arguments. <laughs> right. All right, let's move on to the next caller, because by God, we've got to get to the end of this list at least once in my lifetime. But uh, thanks for calling in, Jason, uh, and congratulations on being on the change wagon. You know, once it starts, it's really hard to stop. Uh, so I appreciate what you're doing for yourself and the world. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for helping teach me about uh, peaceful parenting and making that available. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Up next right. is Barrett. He wrote in and said, where does virtue come from? Is it just the biological expression as a result of evolution and survival? If this is the case, why don't other animals display virtue, to the best of my knowledge? I'm um, sorry, what's the name again? Uh, Barrett. Barrett. All right. All right. Um, well, what do you think? Well, I was just... You know, I was reading a real-time relationship book, and you talk a lot about virtue in it and make a lot of good arguments. And it's actually, I thought it was a really good book, but it's just, I, I didn't think it ever really addressed, like, where does virtue come from? And I mean, if well, that's, from but that's, sorry, sorry about it. That's universally preferable behavior. So Barrett's talking about a book that's free at freedomainradio.com slash free called Real-Time Relationships, The Logic of Love. Um, which is my take on how you apply philosophy to 
have better relationships. And um, I do talk about virtue in that. I'm talking about sort of honesty and, and vulnerability and and so on. The definition of virtue is in another free book called Universally Preferable Behavior, a Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. So, um, but go ahead. Okay, so I guess I didn't read that book, so may I just miss the whole uh, topic on where it actually comes from. So, yeah, I just want to call in and kind of pick your brain on where it comes from because, I mean, just, I don't know, to me, to have it come from evolution, just, I don't know, just I have a hard time just hard time with that it's just i don't know because if it just if it was just by accident you know then what makes it preferable to like a negative behavior yeah i i certainly don't believe that ethics or virtue comes from evolution okay i mean evolution is not limited to human beings and it's tough to find evidence of ethics in say the insect kingdom right so no I, i'm with you there i don't think it comes from evolution at all there are thinkers out there who believe that there are evolutionary advantages to things like reciprocal altruism and so on um so if you uh, help people out and you're part of a community then you help people and you're generous you're kind and all that then people will help you back right uh, right and so you know the the people who are helpful and beneficial and so on they are bloody blah, blah and i say bloody blah, blah just because it doesn't really take into account hierarchies it's just kind of horizontal usually at the middle class slave level so there are yeah and there are advantages to helping people out you know if you go and help your friends move then when you say to your friends listen i'd really like you to to help me move then they'll probably come and do it right and i think that's you know that's fine in a tribal sense i uh you know i don't know if i'll ever move again but i i wouldn't call my friends to help me move because you just pay for some movers when you get older right um so, I mean, there's costs and benefits to this reciprocal altruism. Uh, they're, they're just, there is generally a positive health benefit to having social, to being in a social environment. Like the loners tend to not, uh, to not live as long. It's one of the reasons why religion is, uh, can be a net positive for people's health because religion puts you in a community and, um, you get that community support, you get that, uh, um, you know, when the human brain is isolated, it sometimes devolves to worry. Uh, but when it's socialized, uh, it generally has a protection against that. So, you know, having that social sphere around you can be very, very positive. I think it's something that the agnostic and atheist community can work a little bit more. I mean, I'm happy that there are all these meetup groups around for people interested in philosophy coming out of this show. I think it's great. And people should really pursue that and not uh, underestimate how beneficial that is in general. So, uh, but I don't believe that... Um, there is uh, evolutionary advantages to to ethics in certainly not in all spheres. I mean, a ridiculous percentage of geographical, I think it's the the Asian population can be directly traced back to the rapey penis wick of Genghis Khan. You know, I mean, so it's hard to see how, you know, the mass slaughterhouse of, of Genghis Khan would um, 
would be considered virtuous, but from an evolutionary standpoint, it sure did spread some genes. So I'm not sure that I could really buy that it's automatically advantageous for, you know, peaceful, virtuous, honest, ethical behavior to automatically be propagated among the gene pool. It seems to me that quite often nasty, mean, sociopathic behavior is spread among uh, the gene pool uh, as fast, if not, if not faster, right? I mean, let's sort of give you an example, right? So what is more evolutionarily advantageous to women? Uh, just get comfortable. It's going to be a tiny rant, by which I mean a huge rant. But um, <laughs> what is more evolutionarily advantageous for women? Physical attractiveness or virtue? Physical attractiveness. Right. How long did you hesitate before <laughs> responding to that question? Not very long. <laughs> and why not? Oh, it's just, I mean, you know, physical attractiveness, you know, just, you know, through, uh, you know, they can, you know, just through physical attraction, people uh, can tell that you have better genes, you know. And Well, no, the answer to- is because it's because you don't you don't grow your own food, right? Right. Right. So I assume you go to a supermarket or a grocery store or whatever, right? Uh-huh. So I was at the grocery store the other day, and uh, I put on my little vomit helmet, and I decided to pick up a couple of women's magazines. And you flip open the women's magazines, and if virtue were evolutionarily advantageous to women, then the women's magazines would look quite a bit different <laughs> than they do at the moment, have you ever flipped through one of these uh, brain eviscerating, highly made up zombie fests known as women's I, magazines? I try not to, but no, look, listen, <laughs> you got to know what's out there. Right? You gotta, I mean, if you want to date women, then you got to know what women are being exposed to. It doesn't mean that all women are the same, but enough of them are that all the magazines are the same. And what are the magazines? Here's how to look perky. <laughs> Now, which celebrity wore it best? Look, these celebrities have bobs. And by that, I don't mean fictional characters from universally preferable behavior, rational proof of secular ethics. It's apparently a kind of hairdo. You know, here's how to make your eyelashes look like harpoon cable ropes that could take down a blue fucking whale. Oh, <laughs> isn't that great? Because that's all about the attractiveness. Here's to make your eyes look so shadowed, it looks like you've gone one-on-one with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Here's how to make your cheekbones look like Navajo pimples. You know, it's like this is all the stuff that's in there for for women. You know, these stockings can make your legs look longer. Put your ass on a shelf with these high heels. <laughs> it's complete madness. This is this is what is evolutionarily advantageous to women in the modern world to lie. To lie. Your boobs ain't that big. That's some <laughs> suspension bridge that would put the Brooklyn Bridge to shame. And that ain't your real face color. That ain't your real hair color. That ain't your real, uh, that ain't the real length of your legs. You know, there's also a movie with Anna Ferris where she basically wakes up in the morning, puts makeup on, and then comes back to bed because she's like over 35 or something like that, right? <laughs> Mike's 18 ways to turn him on. Um, you know, 
I don't know that nakedness is 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 eighteen things, but that seems to be enough. <laughs> Twenty things to do with your boobs in bed. Is, what are you playing castanets? Are you showing like some sort of like a Newton machine with these hangbots? I mean, what the hell is going on? I think, Mike, are these actual titles? Yes, these are actual titles. I'm pulling up. <laughs> 20 things to do with your boobs during sex can i tell you i'm glad it's not 21 because that would be an odd number and then one of them would be left out in whatever the hell you were doing at the end uh stroke a cat pick up a quarter (laughs) i just think that's quite amazing you on top the hardcore new success secret Ooh. oh yeah you need it you know to to have men enjoy sex you need a success secret (laughs) it's called vagina have you ever found it? Yes, that's the secret. Steph, do you know how to bump proof your <laughs> bump proof your bikini line? <laughs> how to bump proof? Oh, I know. Actually, I know what that means. I do. Uh, that means that um, razor stubble. Th- those little ingrown hairs and stuff that make those little stubbly, pimply things. Mm-hmm. Right. I assume it's flamethrowers and a fire horse. Um, your orgasm face. What he thinks when he sees it. Can I tell you something, ladies? If he can see your orgasm face, you're doing it wrong. Oh, oh! <laughs> my gyno talks to my vagina and other doc shockers. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Cosmopolitan, I'm sorry. Is baby. It... <laughs> can I tap this or do I need to put the card actually in to get the payment? Hello in there! Hello, Echo. <laughs> Hey, there was a nurse in here when we first started. <laughs> so, I mean, but this is, I mean, pick up, uh, you know, Cosmopolitan or whatever, right? And I made this joke before. It's like, how to fuck a man into thinking you're a likable human being. But this, so if, if a virtue was evolutionarily advantageous to women at the moment, then it would be like uh, Cicero. It would be Socrates. It would, there wouldn't be any pictures of like, Fake boobs, fake eyelashes, fake nails, fake tits, fake liposuction, fake, 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 right? There wouldn't be any of that stuff. Right, yeah. There wouldn't be articles about how Kim Kardashian doesn't like to smile because it might give her wrinkles. Right. Um, But the reality is if you – if virtue were evolutionarily advantageous, then women's magazines would be about virtue, not about how to turn yourself into a postmodern piece of – clown sex makeup in order to fool a man into thinking that you have more to offer than your pussy. And that's not the way it works. So where is the evolutionary advantage for virtue? Now, through this show, as you may have noticed over these many years, through this show, I'm trying to put virtue front and center when it comes to deciding who to love or or accepting who makes love even possible for you. So that aspect of things is really, really essential to, to the show. And until, until by God and unless I open up a Cosmopolitan article and there's tips on how to be honest, <laughs> how to not fool a man into thinking you're something that you're not, uh, how to be loving, how to support, how to be a good listener, how to accept, how to judge a guy by his virtues rather than he's cute, funny with dimples. <laughs> I mean, God almighty. It really is like making goo-goo eyes at Japanese fetishist retarded sex preteen anime robots when it comes to looking at these goddamn magazines. But this obviously is what works. 
this is what works. If you turn yourself into a sex clown, then men will want to put up the big top for you. I don't know how to put it from there. But um, so if, if virtue were evolutionary advantageous, then women's magazines would be about how to be virtuous. Right. But they're so, not. So, so, if, it, so if, it's, if it's not a, uh, a result of evolutionary, you know, uh, an evolutionary, uh, you know, trait, I guess, then is virtue something from culture or? Go God we, I mean, <laughs> is you know, science I don't, something I don't, from superstition? I don't, think that no. I don't think that either. I mean, no. but, you know, I'm just trying to, I don't know. Does, does mathematics come from witch doctors? No, <laughs> it doesn't. They just like counting their money. No, virtue, as I've argued before, and I'm sure we'll like you again, virtue is universally preferable behavior. And I've got a whole book about it, and I just did this in the last show, so I'm not going to go into all of this, but there are very clear ways of rationally demonstrating universal secular virtue with no reference to the guns of the government or the ghosts of gods, there are ways. And it's not irrational. It's purely part of philosophy. There is no virtue to be found in culture because culture is obedience to the anti-rational. Because if it's not culture, it's rational. This is why we know that science is not culture. Right? right. This is why if you get a scientist from India and a scientist from Iceland and they both speak the same language, when they get together, we don't call it a cultural event. We call it a scientist gathering, a scientific event. The science is universal. Mathematics is universal. An engineer can build a bridge in uh, New Delhi as he can build a bridge in Tallahassee. I mean, there may be local phenomenon, but the methodology is still the same. So what people called culture is inebriated and elevated bullshit that they don't want to call lies. You know, what is culture? Culture is my dance is special. Your dance is silly. Well, that's just bullshit. You know, culture right. is, my traditions are great. Your traditions are weird. I mean, it's just all nonsense. Everybody <laughs> can say that about everyone else's culture. <laughs> culture is just all of the gilded bullshit that people try and pass off as having depth and meaning because they don't want to admit that it's just prejudice. And mm -hmm. so uh, ethics is, is a rational philosophical discipline. And it's not something that you do to appeal to the better angels of people's nature or to say, well, there's benefits down the road and it's better for you. Fuck no. The most and strongest ethical advances that occur in the species occur because people are self-destructive. You know, like the first people who thought, hey, you know, man, maybe slavery is not such a good idea. They did not live to see the end of slavery. Good God, no. They didn't live to see the end of it at all. In fact, they were, they were ostracized, they were alienated, they were ridiculed, they were cursed, they were spat upon, they were slandered, they were, you know, I mean, everybody hated them. I mean, the, the bigger the moral leap forward, the more insane the people have to be to advocate it. I mean, what the hell kind of benefit is that? I mean, imagine if you're in the South. We go back to the antebellum South, right? We're back in the South <laughs> in, in the late 1700s, and you're like, no, slavery is wrong. I mean, what does that do to your dating pool? My Lord, he said slavery was wrong. <laughs> What's that? That's crazy. Right? I mean, this is, I mean, or let's say you're an atheist in the same time period, you know? 
Well, the, the church has its iron grip on the local vajayjays of the fertile ladies. You know, I mean, Christianity and religions, they hold a monopoly on eggs, whereas uh, communism, with its sort of free love thing, offer you uh, uh, easy access to vaginas, right? Hoard the eggs, access the vaginas. That's the whole difference between the right and the left. But it doesn't make any sense. None of these things made that the people who went up against the papacy about the solar system or about science, I mean, they were some of them were killed and tortured. They didn't live to see the flourishing of science that happened 200 years later under Francis Bacon. None of this stuff happened. The ah. bigger the advance, the more insane, anti-evolutionary and anti-culture someone has to be. You know, if, if I have the moral goal of getting my neighbor to put their garbage out the night before rather than the morning off. Maybe they do it late. This is not true. This is just what I'm saying. Maybe they do it late and I smell. Like, okay, I may live to see that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. It's not exactly a massive advancement in the ethics of mankind, right? But if right. I wish to do something like replace the cult of the family with a voluntary family, I'm never going to live to see that in any significant way. And it's crazy. I mean, what idiot would take that on as a mission? I mean, it goes against the deepest, most fundamental prejudice, pro-parents, pro-family prejudice that, that exists in the world. It makes no sense. It's crazy. It's crazy. But it just happens to be the biggest moral advancement, I believe, that human beings are capable of. Because you cannot deal with child abuse. You cannot deal with corruption. You cannot deal with abuse as a whole without introducing voluntarism. The way you reform the post office is you privatize it. The way you reform the family is you privatize it. It's pure libertarianism extended to the only place that matters, the family. What sense does it make? How many people misunderstand this? How many people hate it? I don't know. Don't care. Don't look. Don't see. Doesn't matter. But it is the biggest moral advance. I will never live to see it. Why would anyone do it? <laughs> Well, because you're into principles and that's what you do. And if not you, who, right? So right. I don't think that there's much uh, cultural advantage <laughs> to ethics unless you're talking about conformity, <laughs> in which case it's not ethics, but obedience. Mm -hmm. uh, that, may, that, that makes sense. I guess, uh, I guess I need to read your university preferable behavior book. And, uh, it's free! And, uh, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, virtue comes from rational, you know, rational thought and not... Yeah, it has to. Not, I mean, it yeah, has I mean, to. Yeah. I mean, the idea that, that we take away the virtue given... Oh, we take away God and then elevate virtue to the status of a deity is scarcely atheism. You know, and this is what the idea that we can somehow avoid the requirements of first principles and rational consistency and empirical evidence when it comes to ethics, which is the most essential of human disciplines, and that somehow we can goo it up with evolution or, or culture, or Sam Harris has this, you know, well, science can answer all of our ethical questions, I'm paraphrasing or whatever, right? It's like, well, you know, if we want less cholera, then I'm sure science, the science of water treatment has something to do with how we get that answer. It's like, but the reason people don't want to do first principles is because they don't want to realize how fucked up their culture is. They, they simply don't want to realize that. When you compare mostly leftist kind of atheism to the culture as a whole, well, there's a place for it. 
right? And that place for it is communism. Communism is anti-God and pro-totalitarianism, pro-state. Whereas on the right, they're more pro-God and anti-state uh, and so on, right? I mean, not two extremes and so on. And uh-huh. but but if you if you abandon all of these cliches, if you refuse to allow yourself to be a ball that rolls into one of the many convenient holes that is there to swallow you up and stop your progress, right? Then if you simply go with first principles, right? And we just, let's just say the non-aggression principle, this is all talked about in the book, but just non-aggression principle, thou shalt not initiate the use of force or fraud, right? Well, of course, that deals with religion in that you cannot threaten children with hell and you cannot lie to them and say things are true for which you have no proof because that's fraud. And it deals with the state, which is the initiation of violence. It deals with child abuse, which is the initiation of violence. It deals with just about everything. You know, they've been looking for this um, unified field theory in, in, in physics for, oh gosh, I think Einstein blew, blew his brains out for the last couple of decades of his life trying to find this thing. Something which unites strong and weak forces, electromagnetism and, 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 and gravity, like something just puts everything together. Uh-huh. But that's to me this this non-aggression principle UPB and and so on. This is what it does to ethics. It puts it all together. But what happens is that that when you go to first principles, which you know, I mean, the the modern thinkers are perfectly capable of doing. I mean, but when you go to first principles, you are then thrown this in, insane giant ball of insanity called culture that is not revealed and doesn't attack you until you work from first principles. And you say, well, taxation is the initiation of force. The state is the initiation of force. Child abuse is the initiation of force. Religion is the initiation of force and fraud because death threats are, are wrong. And uh, the, the eternal torture is worse than a death threat. A eternal torture of hell and punishment and so on. And um, when you go with first principles, what happens is a giant light goes off in what you think is a city and turns out to be an insane asylum, right? And you think that there's crazy people in the world, but most people are sane. But when you go with first principles, then you realize that most people in the world are crazy and very few are sane or even willing to approach and examine and accept sanity, rationality, universality, consistency. And what happens then is because you've created the light that shows the craziness of the world, the world feels, in general, that it has no choice but to call you crazy. Because projection is pretty foundational, right? I mean, people who believe lots of crazy stuff, when they come across a sane person, will call the sane person crazy. That's inevitable, right? Right. And so all of that occurs, and, and this is one reason why it's so hard for people to work from first principles. You need a very strong support structure. You need a very strong soul. You need a very deep and strong rootedness in empiricism and philosophy so that you can return and circle back and constantly reground yourself when everyone tries to shoot at your feet and have you dance the crazy dance while thinking that they're teaching you the Macarena. So um, it's very hard for people to do it. That's why, you know, when I say to the listeners to this conversation, I love you guys and you women so much, it's because in, in the pursuit of this radical, simple, rational empiricism, it's it's a teeth-gritting, shotgun-blaster, crazy to the forehead. Sometimes it feels like every day that you have to endure. And it is that endurance that makes a better world. And there are very few people who have that level of endurance and commitment, particularly at this earlier stage in any kind of philosophical movement. So, yeah, my respect and admiration for, for you for, 
for the listeners as a whole, um, Barrett, is, is enormous. So uh, that's, that's why I think it's so hard for people to, to get to simple and consistent and universal ethics. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Anything else you wanted to ask? God, God, have uh, we no, finished just, the line and on time? Can't be. Yeah, it was, it was just mainly that, and I think uh, I just need to do some more reading, read more of your stuff, and I think it'll make a lot more sense. Yeah, well, thanks, man. I appreciate that, and uh, I hope you'll go and check it out. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye. You want to read that, Mike? Yeah, I'm actually I'm bummed that he dropped out and no-showed, because I actually am really uh, – we haven't talked about this on the show in quite a while. Is this your albino fetish? <laughs> I'm doing my best to be as attractive to Mike as possible by staying indoors, <laughs> but uh, apparently I'm too spotty. <laughs> um, Kyle was going to call in, but didn't. And his question was, if I only hire 20-year-old albinos for my power washing company, my net potential output is drastically minimized relative to if I hired from the entire labor supply market. Are non-merit evaluations the initiation of force? Are non-merit evaluations the initiation of force? Good God, no. That's like, having a, that's like saying that a preference for redheads is the same as rape. I mean, uh, people have particular romantic or physical or sexual preferences that they have, um, and they will be more likely to pursue people like that, but that's not the initiation of force. Look, you, you can hire the 20-year-old albinos for your power washing company if you want. Um, but the punishment that you'll receive is that by drawing from a smaller talent pool, you will end up with less talented people. I mean, if, if you're going to cast a musical using only your family, you know, unless you're the Barrymores or whatever, it's going to be unlikely that you're going to have the same level of quality as if you audition a thousand people for your musical, right? So the wider you cast your net, the more gold you're going to get to mix metaphors completely. So no, it is not the initiation of force to have a preference for uh, association with a particular group. It's just that um, you are going to fail most likely relative to somebody who's willing to just hire whoever is the best rather than who, who fits a particular category, and the more narrow that category, the less talent pool you have to. Again, to, to sort of say, well, I'm going to cast a musical, but I'm only going to have 20-year-old albinos, you're not going to get as good a set of singers. Because in the bell curve, you're just not going to get a good a set of singers as if you simply audition everyone to, to, uh, to find the best singers. So no, it's, it's not the initiation of force. You will most likely be punished for it uh, in one form or another, uh, either through failure or through less success. But I don't see how exercising a particular preference is the initiation of force, because otherwise everybody would be initiating force all the time, right? So if I buy a particular microphone, then I'm not buying every other microphone. And that is a preference that uh, is exclusionary to every, every other microphone. It's just this microphone. And it'll be years before I buy another microphone if I'm lucky. So the idea that exercising a preference... Uh, even if that preference is not particularly rational or prejudicial, the idea that that's the initiation of force, uh, I, I don't see how that could uh, could be the case. So uh, um, I, I'm trying to sort of think of a like a more. I don't know how you argument. could rebut that. You know, 
<laughs> yeah, and and uh, you know, how would you oppose that, right? And how would you how let's let's say that it was immoral. How would you? The problem is, is that you'd have to be a, the moment you have to be a mind reader, you can't be talking about ethics, which is why it's universally preferable behavior rather than universally preferable thoughts or preferences or prejudices or perspectives. So if you stab someone, that's physical evidence, right? I mean, there's a stab wound, there's a knife with blood on it somewhere, maybe on you uh, and so on, right? So that's evidence, right? There's something that's physically there. The problem with prejudice is that anyone can claim, I thought they were the best people for the job, right? And so, you know, let's say you do have a power washing company with only 20-year-old albinos, and somebody says, well, that's prejudicial, that's immoral. Someone could say, I genuinely, I interviewed a lot of people, I genuinely believed these guys were the best for the job. And they could say, well, look, albinos like to work together because they're never pressured into sunbathing. <laughs> I don't know, like whatever, right? They, they get each other. They understand what it's like to be albinos. The fact that there's an albino team who does the power washing means that they've got better cohesiveness. Uh, they're not going to be shunned because if I have one albino and a bunch of non-albinos, the albino is going to be looked at as weird with his red eyes and you know white skin and all that. So I prefer to hire a bunch of albinos because they're really grateful. They're happy to work. They work well together. They understand each other. And uh, you know they're only willing to work on underground parking lots. So the, the problem is, is that someone can make a compelling story, right? So we talked earlier about affirmative action. Well, one of the challenges with affirmative action is, well, first of all, there was originally IQ tests were supposed to be how you differentiate these things. But IQ tests was resulting in too few blacks getting hired for a variety of reasons we've talked about at other times without any conclusion. And... The problem with the affirmative action stuff is that someone can say, well, I did interview a whole bunch of people, but it was only like the whites fit in, you know, they, they fit into the existing company culture and structure and they were the most qualified and they gave the best interview answers and so on. And even if the interviews are recorded, it's really becomes very subjective to figure out whether who was the best interviewee who was, you know, or the person could say, well, I don't know, let's go with a cliche. All of my, like, he says, I don't want to hire a man because all of my customers are women. It's, it's a cosmetics sales company. I don't want to hire a man because all my customers are women and it would just be weird for a man who, can't, who doesn't wear makeup to come and sell makeup to women who do. So it, it just becomes really difficult to prove prejudice because very few people will admit prejudice, particularly if it's illegal. They will simply say, it worked out this way, or this is, you know, I, I interviewed lots of different, this, these were the best interviewees I had. And then what are, you, what are you supposed to say? Can you then say, well, no, you're wrong. These weren't the best interviewees, you're prejudiced and so on. And that's why they, because they couldn't deal with that from a legal standpoint, they, they had to get rid of an entrance exams, like an IQ or, or intelligence tests. And then because people could always say, no, I wasn't prejudiced. These were just, these 12 white guys were the best for the job. You can't read people's minds, and so it just had to become a quota system. But I don't see how you could possibly figure out whether someone is racist behind closed doors, because interviews happen behind. I guess if somebody said, uh, oh, you whatever expletive, uh, I'm never going to hire an expletive here, um, the Hispanic or whatever, right? Then if someone recorded that, I guess you could say that or whatever, but... Um, 
but you know i it seems to me that the the right to be uh, prejudiced is is everybody's right and this is something that would be dealt with you could say it's aesthetically negative like there's there's three three categories in universally preferable behavior the first is universally preferable behavior which is virtuous and the opposite which is evil then there's um aesthetically preferable actions like being on time and being polite or whatever it is um uh, reciprocating right like um you know you lent me 20 bucks last week now i want to now you want to borrow 20 bucks if i say no it's not great but it's also nothing to get thrown in jail for and then there's morally neutral actions like you know running down the street and who knows whether it's good or bad and I would, you, you could make a case that prejudice would fall into aesthetically negative actions. In other words, we'd rather that it wouldn't be there, but it's not something we can throw people in jail for. Um, and again, the reasons for all of this and the differentiations are in the book, Universally Preferable Behavior, which is at freedomainradio.com slash free. But I, um, I don't feel comfortable saying that someone is wrong. Let's say there's a... Uh, uh, a black woman who really gets turned on by white guys and, and really likes white guys and wants to marry a white guy. Do we throw her in jail for her racial prejudice? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that'd be a pretty horrible standard. Let's say that there's a a black girl, a black woman, who only wants to marry a black man because she wants those lovely doodop chocolate babies. Well, I mean, would would I be comfortable saying, well, that's racist, you should go to jail? No, of, of course not. People are happy. I mean, welcome to have whatever prejudices or, or preferences, if you want, that they want. And the market will punish those who have irrational preferences. Um, I would never say to a black woman that her preference for a black man is irrational. I mean, black-white marriages uh, or uh, interracial marriages have a very bad track record. They generally have much worse track records than same-race marriages, for whatever reason. I don't know what the reason is, but... There are very rational reasons to for a, a black woman to say, I want to marry a black guy. I mean, not least of all, because there is some tribalism in the world. And, you know, I mean, um, the kids who are uh, multiracial sometimes have difficulty finding where to fit and blah, 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 blah. So I think that having prejudice or preferences or whatever, you know, you can try and talk people out of it. You can let the economics deal with the situation if they're going against their own economic self-interest. But the idea that this is some sort of initiation of force, I think, is uh, not uh, not sustainable because you can never prove it. And that which you cannot prove cannot be in the realm of good or evil because that's when you get crazy things like the thought police. So I hope that helps. Uh, and um, that's it, right, Mike? That is it for today. Absolutely. Dear God. <laughs> we <laughs> made it through a show. Completeness. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. We will be we're back on a regular schedule now. Yep. For uh, we'll be back on Wednesday, Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. Please do drop by, check us out. Please, please, please. As always, it's a new year, it's a new day, it's a new life, and uh, we got to get ourselves uh, the cheddar to get out into the world. And we've got some great new uh, show ideas, and um, should have we a need big your help. surprise for everyone this week. Matter of fact, got a big surprise for everyone this week. Uh, but we need your help for all of this stuff. So please, please come and uh, help us out. We're not asking for the 10% of your income that a lot of religions do. Uh, whatever you could spare uh, is is gratefully and graciously appreciated. Over two bucks, maybe. <laughs> but um, uh, you just go to freedomainradio.com slash 
donate and sign up. I mean, you'll feel better. And you know it's the right thing to do if you consume the show a lot. You know we're doing great things in the world and we're really helping a huge number of people, hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, live better lives, more peaceful lives, be better parents, raise a generation of win-win kids who are not going to understand why we even need a government, let alone whether we should have one. So um, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Thank you, everyone, so, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week.